Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to the Here and Now podcast, a mini series of the Here on Earth podcast uh, where we continue to discuss uh, racial issues, racial injustice, uh, not only here in our city of Minneapolis and St. Paul, um, but throughout our country, throughout our world, and uh, a continued problem that um, just doesn't seem to go away. And it's at the forefront right now with all the things that are happening uh, locally, nationally. Um, and uh, we bring into the fold, I'm AJ Mansoor, as always, Josh Cohn, my co-host with me as well. And we bring into the fold today, uh, he's a co-pastor of The Table uh, community in Minneapolis, and he's the uh, chaplain uh, for the Minnesota Timberwolves. His name is Matt Moberg, um, a man who has been very active. He has a church in South Minneapolis. Um, he's been on the front lines not only for the last month and change um, since the George Floyd incident, but uh, well before that. So, Matt, thank you uh, for taking the time out of your night to join us yeah. and have a conversation. We appreciate the time. I appreciate you having me, man. This is great. Uh, so we continue to have conversations, like I mentioned, um, on race uh, and what um, racial injustices we're, we're learning about. Um, the idea behind this podcast was um, to have those conversations, to bring them to light, to share them with an audience that maybe doesn't always have them. Um, and we, we tap on you tonight um, for a unique perspective, um, a discussion on, on the church's role in racial injustice and activism and support for uh, our brothers and sisters of color. Um, tell us real quick a little bit about the table, a little bit about what you do um, on a regular basis, have been doing for years, and uh, what you guys continue to do uh, amidst the, uh, the the current unrest that we have in our world right now. Sure. Um yeah, the table. So the table is a relatively new church. I mean, we we started, man, we are three years old, you guys. And so we're still in the toddler stage. We get to the preteen teenager. But our, our genesis story, if you will, was we started as a um, a worship service of a more uh, um, rooted, established church that had thousands of people coming to it. And to this day, I believe they still have thousands of people coming to it. Um. But one of the things we experienced was that we were bringing in a lot of people who who weren't coming into churches. A lot of people were finding a home inside of our church who had felt like they had run out of space inside of churches. And so uh, a lot of people from the queer community, a lot of people who have just been wounded in 10,000 different ways. The church has a unique ability to hurt a lot of people. And I think that we could all have our own individual stories around what that looks like. But one of the things that we experienced then in trying to care for our community and be faithful to some sense of like, this is the work that we are here to do. This is the path that we've been put on. So how do we be faithful to that? We recognize that um, the larger church that we were embedded inside of, everyone is great with, with pastors, preachers, church folk being abstract. Like, and, and by that, I mean like talking about let's stop racism. Let's love all people. Be kind to your neighbor. But the moment that you start talking about systemic inequities and the disparities at hand, the moment that you stop celebrating diversity and shift our attention towards the disparities, 
you have people that are, are making accusations about being uh, too, this is church language, uh, but it's like too worldly. You know, you, you're to be in the world, but not of the world. So we were in that conversation recognizing how do we how do we be faithful to the good news that we perceive in Jesus in a world where there's so much bad news coming at us? And um, in an effort to do so, we recognize we had to. Church and we left an established church three years ago. We, we started this thing up. We didn't have much support. There's a lot of people, again, who weren't psyched about our existence at all. And so it's kind of like, honestly, AJ, it, but between you, it, it was like, we have, like, will we make the first year? Like, let's give it the old college try, but I don't see us still standing on our feet at the end of this year. And that was me being optimistic about it, that we could even make it the full year. But, but hmm. I mean, God was faithful and, and, there are so many people out there right now, and I think we're feeling it on a hyper accelerated level right now, but like so many people are thirsty for good news and to be able to merge their stories with others who are in pursuit of embodying good news, not just expressing it, but actually like, how do we live this out? And now to be clear, we don't like, we, we do not embody this 24 seven, like we're as messed up and, and like we are our posers most of the time. But like we are trying our best to take seriously the liberating path of Jesus and, and live it out for ourselves. And it's hit or miss. But we have a beautiful community that's emerged from that effort. And and so now we're here. We're on South Minneapolis. We, we meet what we're going to meet. We've been obviously on pause with the pandemic, but we're going yeah. to meet again at Bethlehem Lutheran Church. That'll be our new landlord coming this fall and um, Sunday nights. So that's what we're about. So I, someone that grew up in the church, I actually work for a church right now in the video department um, for a church. But what what do you see as, like, you? I feel like one thing I got from you is that the church does a good job of maybe talking and not as much of doing. Yeah. Um, have you seen that? And not don't throw any specific church or Christian under the bus, but like, how have you seen the church kind of miss, miss it in this area where, like yeah. you said, they talk about it, but maybe don't actually do it? Um, is it because maybe you think maybe it's because it's uncomfortable or because I guess, what have you seen? And, and maybe do you have any guesses to why the church has kind of struggled in this area? Yeah. Now, when you say this area, are you speaking specifically about like racial equities or are you speaking about like, specifically? um, you know, I, I don't know who said it first, but I've heard the quote, you know, the most segregated hour of the week is Sunday morning, right? In churches. Right, Dr. King, yeah. Yeah. I think there's a, there's just a lot of that in every churches. And and I think a lot of, you know, our church that I go to and that other churches that pastors and people that I've talked to, I, they say the right things. And I think a lot of them really do try, but why do you think the church misses it in that area? So I, let me just say this. Um, okay. So here's, here's what I would say, and this would maybe be a short answer. Maybe I'm going to regret not saying more, but I would say that Typically, for white pastors such as myself, and I've been guilty of this, for white pastors myself, we have prioritized. So, predominantly white pastors lead predominantly white churches. Not not wholly, but like predominantly. To your point, Dr. King's the most segregated hour in America is Sunday morning at church. But white pastors have prioritized white church folks emotional stability and general sense of comfort over the lives of black and brown sisters and brothers in this country. And that's honestly like how 
um, injustice in any form comes to be. When, when the interests of the privileged are prioritized over the needs of the oppressed, expect injustice to happen. And so what happens then is if my priority as a pastor is I want you to be informed, but I also want to keep you cozy. Like, because if I don't keep you cozy, I can't, where's the cash going to come in? Like when the plate passes, if you're angry, like how are we going to keep the lights on? If I ask you to march in the street in behalf of people who who are crying out like the prophets cried out, um, you're going to take that as a political thing, even though this is a pragmatic way that we we don't, again, just express solidarity, but we embody it. And so you're, why do we do what we do? We are protecting the status quo because I get paid by the church so I can feed my kids and have a house and and have a job i mean so like there's that there's honestly like that that is it if and here's the thing that's really crappy about it and this extends far beyond just the conversation about it creating a more racially equitable world is there's a lot of truths that pastors that i know suppress because they do not believe that their communities that they serve could take it like there's a lot of things where it's like they can't we can't tell. In fact, let me give you this story. This might have no bearing. And so I apologize if it doesn't. But I remember being in seminary. There was the, there was one of our seminary proffer, prof, professors said uh, we're doing a study on the life of Moses. And he goes, there is about 72 other. This is a conservative, more conservative evangelical seminary. There's about 72 other people in ancient near east that have parallel lives to moses they have similar stories and like this is like what what say tell please tell me more and then somebody asked after the professor did tell us more how are we supposed to like go back home and tell our communities about that and the professor i just remember this he goes well obviously you know that like the first rule of being a pastor is you don't tell your communities everything <laughs> and so like what's what's that's just a a a a, a that's just a truth inside of this trade. Now, what that kills, though, to your question, is that I, in my perspective, in my belief, the spirit of God, the spirit of the son of love, Jesus, who pushes for a liberating path is always inviting us into something new. But the church is constantly playing the obstacle that stands in the way. And a lot of that actually comes down to even just how we think about Jesus. Right. I mean, how we how we talk about Jesus. So if you think about by and large growing up. Uh, for me, Jesus, we talked about for what he we, we remember Jesus. And when we did so, we remembered what Jesus died for. He died for our sins, died for our salvation. And that's all like essential. We should continue to beat that drum and go back to that old salvation story. But we ought to also talk about what Jesus was killed for. Like there, there is a reality where if Jesus would have just stayed out in the sticks and, and done magic tricks, walked on water, turned water into wine, that would have been all congruent with the Roman pacification program. But instead, he chose to go to Jerusalem on the day of the Passover, when the city was celebrating the liberation of the Jews from Egypt, while they're still living under an empire's heavy hands. This is Egypt throwing an exodus party. <laughs> And Jesus starts flipping over tables saying, "This you can't play this game. Like, this, is, this isn't right. This is wrong. And the moment that he starts pushing back on the powers that be, 
then you have to shift your attention from what is Jesus dying for to what was Jesus killed for? Jesus did not die in old age. He didn't age out of hospice care. He wasn't killed by a drunk driver. He was killed because he was a viable economic and social and political threat to the empire at hand. The church doesn't tell that story, but that is the story. Like it's on, this is like, like why, you know, so many Christians, they, they're adamant about are you a Bible-believing Christian? This is why we call the Southern Hemisphere of the United States the Bible Belt. Like, why don't we call it the Jesus Belt? Because Jesus is offend. Jesus has teeth, and and Jesus is like we want to keep the the neutered Messiah Jesus in his proper place as a statue, in the same way where we want to keep King as a statue and not an actual prophetic voice. Like, it's it's just it's true. We love we love these prophetic voices when they're dead. And when they're gone, yeah. and when we're not the particular company that they're prophesying towards, that is a very way too long of an answer towards what you're saying. But I think it's really just a, such a truth about the predicament that we're in. Yeah. No, and, and it touches on perspective um, and and how um, cultures uh, from different backgrounds read the Bible and, and interpret the Bible. And you know, there was a quote that I'm I'm going to butcher, trying to to rehash it here, but I'm going to paraphrase as best I can. That essentially said that white Christians read the Bible and they they relate themselves to yeah. uh, the Israelites, and, yeah. and they're about as far from that relation as as they could possibly be. Where in reality, specifically here in America, white Christians are are Egypt. Yeah. White Christians are Sodom and Gomorrah more so than they are the Israelites being liberated and being, you know, saved and, and, and set free. Um, how, how do you approach that? With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Pat, I mean, how you know when we come to the table? No pun intended here, but when we come to to um, a conversation with the mindset that you know we're reading the Bible one way. Um, when in reality, the way that we're acting, the way that our culture is set up is is oppressing a, a different race. How, how do we kind of correlate those things and and truthfully try to, you know, as, as you've said, as we've said before, to to be as like Jesus as possible when we don't really have the mentality that Jesus had? Yeah. OK, so, Age, I think I'm catching your question here. Like, let me give you an example from this past week in the lectionary in this this past week in Bronx in Genesis 20, 21. The story of Hagar, Abraham, and Sarai. Now, typically in my if it's true, but like in my upbringing, the Hagar story of being driven to the desert where she encounters God for herself in the midst of her peril and tragedy and injustice after she was just um, now how we would phrase it growing up is she was married to Abraham to to carry this child. Like my my evangelical white upbringing was. Is there been a time where you yourself have felt like you've been driven out to the desert? Like, yeah, has there been a time where you felt like discarded by your friends? Has there been a time where you felt like you were at the end of your rope and you didn't know what to do? Like, that's that's not not true. Like that that has elements of like the the, the scripture should speak to our spirits like that. 
but don't don't dismiss the context of the story that you are reading because Hagar is this girl who was given from the Egyptians to Abraham and Sarah as a slave. She is then raped by Abraham. She then runs on her own accord. Like that's not a story that you can relate to. And so that is a prime opportunity to not take it and bastardize it for your own purposes, but to ask like, who am I in this story? And clearly, if you're if you're a white Christian, you fit in the Abraham and Sarah role. And so we ask new questions. And so what does it look like to actually not just be a performative ally? Like when we're talking about racial equity, like, yes, allyship, like aspirationally, we should work to be allies and in one another's corners and trying to bring about a better tomorrow. But like, what does it look like to be an accomplice? Like Abraham in this story, he doesn't say anything bad about Hagar. But he does say to Sarah, you do with her what you please. She's your, your business, not really my thing. So this is one of the things that was striking to me about um, the George Floyd murder was, I don't know if you guys had the same experience, but like for me, when I watched it, what shook me almost the most the first time through was seeing Chauvin's hand in his pocket and his sunglasses cocked up on the middle of his head as if he was like in vacay mode, like he was like too like nonchalant to be disturbed by the death beneath him. And I feel like by and large, that is, that is the, the, the ideology of empire, right? Where it's like, you can be, be on the job in the task, but not actually feel the weight of your own complicity and not, not actually feel like how you are a part of the problem. And so AJ, your question was, how do we look at AJ? Tell me your question again before I go off into what the engineer. Yeah. I mean, how, how do we change the way that white Christians think, I guess, is, is a, a quick way to summarize that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so one of the first things we did as, as a church, when we first started out as a plant, is we brought in Pastor D. McIntosh and Siri Milton, two, two leaders in North Minneapolis, and they led our church through months-long work of cultural competency. And by that, like, I'm not talking just about, like, being cognitive and aware of your own implicit bias, but, but understanding, like, when you walk into a room, there are power dynamics at play. And so, like, it, it society as we know it does not operate on a plateau like there are certain people that will hear your voice more than the hill my voice there's just a reality to these pieces and so one of the number one questions that we say at the, the table and, I, and I, it is absolutely true that the number one number one questions the bible consistently asks is how will you carry your power like how will you carry what is your how will you steward your time talent treasures whatever you have what will you do for the betterment of your brothers and sisters around you because if the model is Jesus Philippians 2 the one who could have claimed equality with God chose to chose to forsake that for the equity of all and chose to serve instead and so if that's the paradigm that we are called to be faithful to like what does that what do i have to let go of and part of that aj has been like um, for white Christians in particular, we, we just have to let go. And this is going to be this. You won't see this happen. Um, but we have to let go of abstract pep talks. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, um, abstract pep talks, like the whole point the whole like scandal of Christianity in Asia, we heard this all throughout Bethel is the particularity of, of Christianity. Like that it wasn't just the abstract word that hovered over all of life and gently nudged us, 
The word became fleshed and moved into the neighborhood. It took up a task and went down a path and chose to be about some things in a different way. And so there's this scandal of particularity. And the thing that makes it so scandalous is that you are not allowed anymore to be left alone in the abstract. You have to name things for what they are. And so it's not a... As, as I've heard some churches do, like we go, guys, let's, can, how about we all put our hands in and commit to ending racism? Let's, let's talk about like, what are the socioeconomic policies in play that are, that are preserving and protecting white supremacy as we've always known in this country? And what does it mean to be good news that says there's a better way forward? So we have different people in our community that are working on different things like the income. Uh, I mean, Minneapolis, as you guys, I, I think are aware, is like top two or three worst cities for black people in our country. Like the disparities between home ownership, I- income, education. Uh, it, it's just, it's it, 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 the gap widens. It's not getting better. And, and there's a lot of talking heads in governmental seats that say that they're going to point this down a path that, that's going to involve a cure. And yet it doesn't happen. Like it's a lot of bark and no bite. And at some point, the church just needs to ask, like, what is the role that we play in being like, to, to actually go and do something that's particular. This is why Dr. King, um, now that we're talking about Dr. King, when he when he was locked up on Good Friday of 1963 and went to that Birmingham jail, when he was given that newspaper and a pen to write with, he didn't go on and on about the Ku Klux Klan or the neo-Nazis or the alt-right neighbor down the road. He, he said, man, I am so flipping disappointed in my moderate white brothers and sisters of the church who profess one thing on Sunday and yet are nowhere to be seen on Monday until like we Mm. actually embody the things that we express like that. That's where the gap. And so my, my role as a pastor is, is how do we not just give the, the emotional pep talk that's going to comfort people as they already are, but how do we give them the empowering and equipping word that's going to help them take the next step forward uh, that's kind of i think where my first thought went i, sure. I don't can't remember what your question was though so i don't know if that was an accurate no there's a lot of good stuff in there man yeah there's actually a lot that i was thinking while you were talking but the one of the questions that i that i have for you and that i think and me and aj have talked about this and it's one of the reasons why we did this podcast is is just having more conversations i think is a good first step for everyone yeah. Um, but a lot of the, the white people, specifically white suburban churchgoers, are really uncomfortable with race conversations. And that's one thing that I've noticed. I'm if you don't know, I'm half black. And even for me, it can be hard to have these conversations with certain people. You obviously in this situation seem very comfortable. But like, how do you navigate that as a white pastor in South Minneapolis, having these conversations? How do you do that? And then what would you say to, to other whether it's other white pastors or just either other white people or the white church that you're trying to, to call the, to rise up and do something or say something, what would you say to them that, that honestly, they're just flat out uncomfortable. And I think that's a lot of times why these conversations aren't happening is because it's uncomfortable and people don't like to be uncomfortable. Okay. Well, let me, let me say this quick before I forget it, because I think it's, it's important. I have a friend who's a black pastor out in Oakland. We were talking last week and he said, something that will stay with me forever. He said, uh, white people's comfort in the church has been paid for by black people's oppression. 
And I, I think that I, I almost just want to say that as an insert right there, that, that comfort, that's not that, that there was a cost to it, regardless of whether or not you had to pay for it. Now, you asked about how I approach it. Um, let me give you a little bit of a background, a little bit into how I first got into this. So I came into the faith actually when I was at Bethel, but it didn't come from Bethel. It came from being a part of Sanctuary Covenant Church, where I had a black pastor, predominantly black church, Dr. Ephraim Smith, who remains to this day a, a mentor of mine. We just had him come through and talk to the wolves, and it was beautiful. I actually went with a group. What did you say? That church and did some outreach there a couple weeks ago. Oh, for real? Um, yeah. 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 We brought some of great church. To the yeah. table up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, do they're doing amazing things. Like yeah. Um, so I, I came to the faith, though, under Ephraim, and I, I was honestly like, when I read Dr. King in particular, in the way that he talked about Jesus, I felt like that's a Jesus legitimately I never knew existed prior to. And huh. so I felt like, I felt like, for lack of a better term, I was woke in my early stages of Christianity. But then 2015 came and Jamar Clark was killed. And I don't know if you guys remember this, but when Jamar Clark was killed in North Minneapolis, the community and specifically some organizers at hand, they led an 18-day occupation of like engagement that I had day in and day out down there on the front lines with the community and trying to understand what is my role in playing in this and feeling like, um, again, as a, a certified woke person, because Dr. King, Ephraim, I have all my credentials at hand. I'm, I'm <laughs> but, but what was interesting is that um, it was this beautiful experience. First of all, the first 18, the 18 days that were down there was beautiful. But in the middle of that time, on one particular night when I wasn't there, there was a truck full of white boys who weren't psyched about the people being down there. And they came and they fired shots at the crowd. Thank God nobody was was damaged. But um, I wasn't there that night. But I woke up the next morning, literally, you guys, to about 57 texts from friends who weren't asking if I was at the, the protest the night before, but were asking if I was the person who pulled the trigger at the protest the night before. Uh. Apparently, when I was asleep, I don't know if you guys know Sean King, but he's got around a million followers on, on the socials. And he tweeted out my photo saying, has anybody seen this man? We're looking for him as the suspected shooter of this. So, you guys, I'm rolling out of bed. Like, <laughs> I don't need coffee that day. I am, like, pacing. And I'm going, like, what is going on right now? Like, I, I'm livid. I don't know what the right next step is here. Like, I don't, I just, I don't know what the play is. And so I, I called my friend, Pastor D McIntosh, who is a black pastor in North Minneapolis. And I said, like, I'm going to need you to walk me through this one. Like, what's the next play? Uh, don't feel great about it. Not psyched about the current circumstances. And, and D's like giving me some like grade A pastoral material here. And she's kind of walking me through, like consoling me, meeting me where I'm at. But I'm still like angry because in my head, I'm going, Dr. King read him. Ephraim Smith read him. Was at the protest chanting, fists in the air, bending the core. Like, and I said out loud to D on the phone that morning, I get that people are angry right now, but how are they going to suspect that I'm the one who did this just because of the way that I look? Hmm. And when I said that, there was like this noticeable silence that hung over the phone. Where it was almost like it was like this. Yeah, I have no idea what that's. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Like Matt at all. For me, what I realized in that moment and, and when I think about like my approaches, I often share that story to one degree or another because there is a sense that for a lot of people that the moment that they become aware is simultaneously the moment that they have arrived. And that the moment that they have like they get a sniff at new information, um, they, they all of a sudden like are experts on the new information. This is why I always say like for, for us as a community at the table, we are always waking but we're never woke and so like this understanding that like you cannot dismantle any form of white supremacy out there if you haven't done anything about the white supremacy in here if it's all performative and not productive you're just wasting everybody's time you're not actually adding something good because you've yet to receive healing yourself and so when i think about how i talk to people about it i tend to try to find a way i mean from the pragmatic point of view how do I lead from my from my pit stains, my ugly, right? How do I lead from like, this is not my most proud moment. This is how I'm entering into this, recognizing if I turn around and do a, a glance over my track record, there's 10,000 fumbles. There's 10,000 missteps. Like I do not have, I'm always waking, but I'm never woke. Like I'm always trying to figure this thing out. But I also would say this is that I had a workshop that I often bring this to people's minds because I think it's it's a really good question. Dr. Robin D'Angelo led this workshop, and she asked this question where she said, um, to a group of predominantly white people, what are some of the ways that race has shaped your life? So we went around the room, and like we're kind of like thinking, like, what are some of the ways that race has shaped our lives? And like honestly, I think my answers were like, uh, my friend is black. I'm in a fantasy football league with him. My neighbors, Latino, uh, we sometimes swap sugar. Like, like that was kind of the extent. Of it. And honestly, in a predominantly white room, that was it, that's what was being echoed around too. Like this sense of like, well, I have a friend down the road. And, and she said something to me, not to me, to the class, to the group, to the room. She said, what I want you to notice though is, she goes, this isn't a shame, but I just want to make sure that we name this. When I asked what are some of the ways that race has shaped your life, each of you named this cross racial encounter that you have had or are currently are having in your life. But do you hear the implication? <laughs> because what you're when you say that is that if people of color are, are not in your life, then race just isn't happening to you. It's not a factor for you unless that friend is in your fantasy football league. But that's just not true. And so I, I got to find this again. I wrote this down because this is one of the things that Robin D'Angelo spoke, spoke about. She said, um, the more honest answer to that question would be is that if I were to look out of the room and said, even before I was born, the forces of race were operating on me and shaping the trajectory of my future life. And she goes, I, I mean that literally. What transportation, education, nutrition was available to my mother? the environmental safety that she, that she carried in, the economic stress that was imposed on her. Where did she deliver me? Who delivered me? How was she treated? Who owned the hospital that I was born in? And who mopped the floors at night when the visitors went home? And who took out the garbage? 
So a lot of people in my in my conversations about race, they enter into it the sense where it's like race is an issue for those people over there. But until like until white supremacy becomes not a thing that white people empathize with black people about, but becomes a thing that it's white people are owning and protecting and perpetuating this problem and until they actually dismantle it. It's going to exist. And so bringing people into that awareness that race is not limited to the black friend you have, but it's actually been shaping the entire way that you see the world. It's a little bit like, sorry for going past around you, but it's a little bit like when Peter Acts 10 has this revelation where he's like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that was clean, but you're saying that it's clean. Now I'm seeing things that I had no idea were there before and I don't know what to do. Honestly, it's this is one of the difficult things about the church and particularly the white church is we spend so much energy, money on providing people with this emotional experience that coddles their life as it is right now, that the work of racial justice requires discomfort and it requires like an unlearning. And that's not sexy. That's not marketable. Like it, it's just there's a reason why Jesus, when he gets to the cross, all of his boys have fled. Like it's, it is the, it is the narrow road. And I think that's part of like, I don't know you guys, I would love to hear your thoughts because it feels to me like the church in bed with the empire trying to be this massive corporation that is always up and to the right feels very incongruent with the Jesus who was all about the downward path. Like, I don't know how you reconcile the two and you have to though, if you're going to try to invite your people to take that path. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, my perspective just a little bit is I think that people just like being comfortable and people like it's easy. Like when you talk about whether it's being a better the empire or, or preaching just to feel good sermon so that everybody leaves feeling good, that's what people want. And whether it is, you know, the tithe dollars or just attendance in general, wanting to feel successful, grow a big church or whatever, or maybe it's just the pastor themselves wants to feel good. But I don't think people, it, it's just that comfort level that I think you talk about, you know, Jesus' perspective, Jesus was not about being comfortable. Right. Um, Jesus did not come to make himself comfortable, was not trying to make the disciples' life easier, more comfortable. Um, but I just wanted to, real quick, when you, because you mentioned the Sanctuary Covenant Church in North Minneapolis. Yeah. Um, I went with with a, a small group from, from my church, and I went there. Um, this was the Saturday after George Floyd was killed. Yeah. And what blew my and I'm not even go I'm not even trying to say this to to brag on myself at all going down there because I think it's a small whatever but we were overwhelmed with like I didn't even get to do that much because there was so many people there supporting and for me that was so encouraging to see um, to see that people that were that wanted to come help and and our church made a, a specific effort to find a church in the area and not try to come in and do our own thing and just try to do whatever but and then I saw other people people that I knew. And then I heard there was other churches too, but people that I knew from other churches that were there as well. And for me, it was so cool to see the church come together, not individual churches doing their own thing. Yeah. The church coming together and to actually do something. Yeah. Well, I just want to ask a quick, like, what's your perspective on the church coming together? Cause honestly, if I went to your church, I might not agree with everything I hear there. Yeah. Why you know, different churches yeah. have different things, but you want to say to my face, you hate our churches. Yeah. Hey, no, I don't know. Maybe I come sometime and hear it. But but I'm just saying, we we don't. If you came to my church, you might not agree with everything. We're not all going to agree on every little doctrinal issue. But 
we can agree that Jesus would do something, that Jesus would help people, that he would reach out to the needy, to the brokenhearted. And seeing the church, and, I, and I'm actually encouraged because I, I feel like I've seen it more recently than I've seen maybe in my whole life. But how, how do you, as a pastor, gather with other churches? Or have you seen that with other churches? You said, you know, sanctuary was a big influence for you. Um, yeah. how, how have you seen that? Or how would you like to see more of that maybe? Yeah, I, I think I would, um, man, I, I, I'm working hard to maintain a, a positive, hopeful outlook on that front. And I mean that in the sense where it's, um, um, so there's this beautiful thing that happens right in the aftermath of a crisis when there's a need that is named. We put out a, you guys, we had a call from an organizer in Minneapolis saying like, is there any way we could get diapers for these families in the area that, that had lost access to their stores in the aftermath of, of the burnings of different buildings. And we put out a, a pallet, like one single pallet in hopes that somebody, people would drop things off. And we put out an ask, we ended up having to order, we ordered one U-Haul truck to bring it all, all put all of our stuff in. And it wasn't big enough. We had to cancel it. And we had to get a Penske truck that was 26 feet long and we filled that thing to the brim with the excess filling up the church lobby. And and so, like, it is beautiful to see people who w- know that there's a need, know that they have resources and are willing to, like, have their resources respond. And we saw that in multiple churches. Multiple churches from the suburbs were contacting us, asking how they can be in our corners. And so the linking of arms is possible when it comes to altruistic endeavors. The challenge is, can, can, can it happen when we move from allies to actual accomplices? And so what I mean by that is, can we actually like, can we, can we be engaged with the city council? Can we be like there in embodied solidarity, not speaking for oppressed communities, but walking with oppressed communities? And oftentimes that's kind of where the limitations lie is around this and again, I'm, I'm kind of beating the dead horse, but it's there's not enough. There's too much talk about racism abstract and not enough talk about white supremacy particular. And until you get to that place right there, I think you are. It's great PR, but it's not actually doing anything that's <coughs> liberating in that way. I mean, you think about, too, there is something I was saying we we're talking. I was talking with a friend the other day. We we're talking about just. And again, like I'm not saying this on the other end of the spectrum where it's like I've arrived and I'm just waiting for y'all to show up. Like, that's not what I'm saying at all. Like, I've been a a perpetuate. I've been so complicit in in this uh, coddling that happens of the American church. But if you actually stopped and and consider that uh, 90 percent of Congress is white, 96 percent of governors are white, 100 percent of president and vice president are white, late night TV show hosts, all white, pretty much. Like we need to start talking to the people who think that race has no impact on their lives. Ironically, they would have the most to lose as if it did. And so like we need to actually acknowledge that there are people who are shaping our worldview, which means that we have to, again, go beyond abstract. And now here's here's a good answer to your question to be more optimistic and less cynical and, and a problem. I've seen beautiful things come out in the past month from different churches where it has gone beyond the token performative dance that we we're all inclined to do into this point where it's like we're asked. So when Paul talks about we don't we don't 
wage war against flesh and blood. That's not our gig. We're here against the powers and principalities, the systems that produce the problems, the thing behind the thing. I've, I've heard from a lot of churches in the past month who are reaching out to me, to other leaders and asking, like, how do we address the thing behind the thing? And so I'm encouraged by by movements like Isaiah. I'm encouraged by churches like Sanctuary that they get that it's not enough. Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he has this quote where he says, yeah, we could continue to tend to the wounds of the victims who are being run over by the wheels of the empire. But at some point, we got to drive a spoke through that wheel and shut the whole thing down. Dr. King says, yes, we should be like the good Samaritan who pulls over to the side of the road. But at some point, we have to ask, why are so many people dropping on this road? Like, what is wrong with this road? I need more churches to want to go to that place right there. Because to think mopping out all of these things, we're in trouble. But here's the challenge is that to go to that place, you have the headlines, abolish the police, dispense or defund the police. And immediately people are going to be like, well, my uncle's a police officer and he's a hell of a guy. And I love him. He got me an amazing gift at Christmas and absolutely true. But like, so what required, what's required of churches in my encouragement is that I'm seeing it is that people are cautioning people to reactive things. And they're saying, understand that there has been a depth of conversation that existed prior to George Floyd that has been going on. And we would love for you to come into that. But it's, it's, we need a maturation process in the church that actually equips people to be ready to be jumping into that. And and not just a reaction, but more like the long-term, like, okay, it's great that everyone's coming down and helping now and doing things, but are we going to continue to see progress after, I mean, honestly, once people move on to the next news story and it's not a big deal right. anymore. What are you going to do when it's not sexy and it's just sweaty? What are you going to do when the cameras all go away? Like, are you still going to want to come in? Like, if it's not as cool to, to do Instagram post on it, like, are you still up for showing up at that point? Because that's what, this is like, and yeah. I mean, get political here, but like, just, you think about a lot of organizers that, that were so juiced about Obama getting into the White House but nobody cared about the Congress after it. Like, so it was like this, This we're all big on like the headline moment, the climactic thing, your one shining moment, but like the, the off season, the work afterwards, the, it takes a sustainable thing to go from a moment to a movement. And that that's what's needed. Now, I think, mm-hmm. I think there's people who are, that are um, ready for that. I, I just haven't seen it yet, but I, I think we're all, I, we're all trying to figure it out. And, yeah. and, I, and I mean that us too, like the table, myself, we're, we're all trying to figure it out. For sure. Uh, one more question for you. We'll let you go. Thanks again. I'm having uh, a great time, AJ. Why do you want to cut this conversation so short? I thought our well, hey. the charts, the convo was flowing. <laughs> the 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 joy of digital recording is I, I got no tape that's going to run out so you take this last question as long as you want man um, we we talk about you know a lot of people that are going to listen to this podcast might uh, be churchgoers um, many who listen aren't people of the church um, but I believe because I've seen it I've had conversations with people that the the recent situations have started stirring something within them um, that is this this 
awareness of the uncomfortability, the awareness of the issues, um, and and they want to do something, but they they don't know what, they don't know where to start, they don't know how to begin that process. Um, for people who who might have just realized that there there is an issue, they they just jumped to that side of the train, they just you know this this was the breaking point, the straw that broke the camel's back, whatever it might be, or, or if they've been there a long time but they've they've done it quietly and they don't know what that next step is. What what would you say is the first step? Um, beyond the, um, you know, obviously there's support that's needed for our community. There's support that's needed for the oppressed. But as far as just tearing down these walls of of systemic racism, of closet racism, of of you know white versus black, just just trying to open up those doors and 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 become comfortable with that uncomfortable. What's the what's the first step that somebody um, should be looking? to embark upon to kind of tear down that barrier? Uh, okay, so let me let me give a, what's the word here, metaphor? AJ, you, AJ, weren't you like a journalism? What was your major? Hey, no, I, I stumbled into journalism, so I ain't got no formal education AJ, there. AJ, you're really good with your words, but <laughs> I am. Um, there's, I have an understanding where it's like, um, if you were to wake up one morning and you walked outside and you saw a baby on the side of the road. You're not guilty for that baby being abandoned on the side of the road. You didn't do that. Like that. You didn't put that baby there. It's not your baby. Like you're not guilty for that, but you are responsible now. And so like, I think there's a, a understanding that, you know, Jesus, he defines sin as awareness without corrective action. And so to learn something without living into it, to be discerning of it without proactive about the implications in it. Uh, and so I think there's something about like recognizing for people who are outskirts and they're trying to li- listen in. That'd be my first thing that I would ask them is to to in- encourage their awareness and 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 also the corrective action. Like, what is the the moment where I think for a lot of people in my life, okay, maybe I'm projecting, but there's a lot of people who hear um, from uh, like a friend of mine, Dr. Nakima Levy Armstrong, and they're like, well, that's outrageous, or she is being too strong on that one particular point, whatever the thing may be. And there's such a discomfort that there's an absence of discerning. And so the, my, my first ask on, on all of us collectively would be that we would actually show up as humble listeners and learners and, and not even like this moral judge and jury of like, we can decide what's right and wrong, but like, we're not seeing the full picture. Like if anything, that's the good news of the gospel is like, you don't have it all figured out. We've all fallen short. Like Paul says, we see through a glass dimly, like you don't have the full picture and you're antithetical to the aim of the gospel when you live as if you do. And so my first ask would be, You have some idea of the story that we are all living inside of, but you don't have the whole story. And so can you ask, can you listen, can you lean in, can you read, can you follow different leaders in Minneapolis, boots on the ground? Because honestly, even in this George Floyd experience, what we are hearing from CARE 11 at night and what I'm hearing on the ground from friends and organizers, and I don't mean to pinpoint CARE 11, I'm sure they're doing a fine job. I mean, no shade. (laughs) But like, it's not always one and the same thing. And so like- my first question would be like, are you actually taking your cues from people who are there and not just pontificating on what it would be like to be there? I also would encourage people to be in, in relationship in, in 
ask questions about proximity. And even like if there's a distance of proximity, like why is that so? Why are we so far past Jim Crow and yet we are still incredibly segregated? So like one of the things we did, AJ, at our church this past year was we did um, – there's a, a film that's on YouTube that I would encourage all of your listeners to take in. It's called Jim Crow of the North. And it talks about the history of racial covenants in Minneapolis and why we are the city we are today. Why, why certain people live here and other people live there. Why does that remain to be true despite like how progressive we are? Like as, as like, it's just, it's a hoax. And so until we can have, my first point would be, I guess, increase awareness. But I also would say like, as people take in documentaries and read books, this is going to feel incongruent with the, with many of our church experience, but like your transformation, your enlightenment, that's not the point. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's really good that you are well-read and well-informed and equipped to respond with them. But your transformation is not the point. Liberation is the point. Like, yeah. the point is, like, not just so you can be aware. The world's not going to get better if you get smarter. The world's only going to get better if you get active and if you lean in and if you get uncomfortable. I mean, James Baldwin talks about it, it is the people who make the committed choices that ripple the waters but you have Jesus rippled the waters. You at some point you have to put skin in the game. Uh, I feel like that's so. I guess people that are outside looking in, first of all, you're not guilty, but you are responsible. We're all in this thing together, and especially if you are a follower of Jesus, a person of color who was killed by the empire, who was killed by the state. If you are a follower of Jesus, you can't be faithful to who the one to the one who is shot and still always err on the side of the shooter. Like at some point you have to ask, what is it about my story that is actually pledging allegiance to his story? Or am I just using this story of Jesus as an endorsement on the life that I was already going to live? Because hmm. I've been guilty of that. I know that. For sure. So I, I feel like um, the awareness is really important, but I also think that as long as we understand that awareness has to lead to activation, has to lead to to recognizing, as King talks about, the beloved community, like the kingdom of God. We pray that every Sunday that the kingdom of God will come. You know, I mean, like, are we actually setting the realities? Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, which is not even to say seek first the king of God, like the king. It says kingdom, like set the conditions on the streets through which it would look like there was a king on the throne in your midst. That's our work. That's the task at hand. That's what we're all to be about. And so I feel like that's, you know, I had this, um, this, there's this South African activist, theologian, his name is Alan Bozak. And he talks about how when he gets to heaven some days, he just had this vision where it's like, God's going to ask him not about like the career highlights, not about like that one time he did that one thing. The first question God is going to ask him is, where are you Alan's going to say, well, I don't have any wounds. And God's going to look at him and he's going to go, was nothing worth fighting for? Hmm. Like that's always hung over my head. Hmm. It is so important that people become aware. And, uh, but as long as they also become active. And if I can just throw one last thing in there, AJ, then I promise you'll shut up. Is there needs to be this understanding that theology in the scripture, the reason why Paul writes his letters to specific churches in particular cities is because theology is local. And so documentaries like Jim Crow of the North, understanding the history of 
if you're in Minneapolis, I love our city. I love so much about our city. I love our leaders on the ground. I love the work that we're committed to taking on together. But I also recognize that we have a city that has a lot of issues and they didn't ju- they're not just accidental. They're, they've been intentionally produced. And so if theology is local and, and we're experiencing bad news on this local scene, we have to ask, what does it look like to embody good news in this particular context right now? And so my, my ask on people would not just be to be aware in learning uh, about white supremacy, about the history of our country, about racism and the 10,000 way it manifests today, but also to know your city and to know that, that there's a history to this place, too. Yeah, uh, we, we did a uh, an interview earlier this week with a professor from St. Cloud State that has uh, studied and is an expert in slavery in mm. Minnesota, slavery's impact on forming Minnesota, um, the existence of slavery in Minnesota. Is that podcast um, out already? Uh, that one's not out yet. No, it'll, oh by the time that God. this one's out, it'll I be out. That. that sounds fascinating. It, it was fascinating. Um, it, uh, Christopher Lehman is his name. He's a professor at St. Cloud State. But uh, a history that I didn't know existed. You know, I just assume Minnesota is about as far north as you can get. Uh, part of the union, free state, not, not the case. I mean, the legislature here pushed to get slavery legal in the summertime so they could get rich uh, tourists from the south to come up and bring their slaves and be AJ, okay with it. we about that, though, AJ. That's not that's not. No. Our- no, we're we're not like them in the South. See, that's stuff though that this whole that uh, it's all been built on is like sure. there's been a, a a high horse saying, "Well, look at them in Dixie and how dumb they are." But like, come on now, like until we can actually sober up and look in the mirror, this is that Chris. What's his name? Christopher Layman. Christopher Layman. Doctor Christopher P. Layman. Tom Layman's little brother. Like that's, yeah. that's amazing. <laughs> that's that's really important work that he's doing. Yeah, no, it's it's really cool. So, Matt, I appreciate the time tonight. I appreciate you taking a little extra time late into the evening to have an important conversation. Um, we'll have links to um, the table. We'll have links to Matt on Instagram. Um, he's very active there, um, as well as he is in our community. Uh, below this post, wherever you're watching or listening to it, so um, you can get that there. I encourage you to follow him, follow what that church is doing in our community, and, uh, and maybe be inspired to, to join in, to, to get some ideas of what, what you can do um, to, again, tear down those walls, uh, get uncomfortable, get dirty, get sweaty, like Matt said. When the cameras are gone, it's time to get sweaty, and that's when we are called to be there on the ground with our brothers and sisters. So, Matt, thank you again for the time. I appreciate I it. Thank you, guys. Um, and uh, continue doing the good work, man. Yeah, blessings, guys. We'll see you. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.